In the 1970s, I answered my telephone one night, and a lady introduced herself as being the leader of one of the biggest ladies' supper clubs in Scotland. I'd heard of it, but I'd never, ever been invited to speak at it. It was always important people, it seemed to me, who were their guests. But she invited me to come and speak. And in the course of the conversation, she said to me, you know, we're always very careful because we've something 200 plus women We're always very careful who we invite to speak. We like them to be master of their subject. We like them to have lots of experience in the subject we give to them on which we would like them to speak. And uh, we feel that you could help us on the chosen topic for next winter. I could feel myself almost visibly swelling with this preamble that soon came to an end when I said to her and what is the subject that I'm supposed to know so much about and have experience about and she said well sin (laughs) (laughs) I felt myself somewhat deflated then Uh, it isn't as bad as it sounds because I had just a few months earlier, completed a series on Scottish television offering Christian comment on a number of social issues, problems that people face, people whose lives were wrecked by sin. So happily, it wasn't my sin that they wanted me to speak about. Rather, it was others. Whenever Colin kindly invited me to speak tonight and said the subject was integrity, I immediately thought, why me? The first thought was that all the others have been invited first. They have chosen their subject, and this is the only one that's left. Why should I be expected to know anything Uh, worthwhile sharing about integrity. And I inquired what sort of market I would face tonight. And I was told it would be uh, academics and intellectuals and theologians. I thought that would be a night off for them then. I left school at 15. I'm a product both academically, intellectually, and theologically of the Holy Spirit of God and British Telecom. (laughs) So I hope that I won't be a disappointment to some of you tonight. But my integrity has been honed on the shop floor in the trade unions, in management, in training, and then in working for 
a Christian charity. So what I have to say to you tonight comes from a heart that's warm about integrity. And I hope that what I have to say will be helpful to some. I would like to break it into four parts, if I may. First of all, to look at what we mean by integrity. And can I say right away that having spent a lot of my life recruiting, selecting, developing, and dismissing staff, personnel, human resources, I know that in that particular field of human interest, the word integrity is bandied about amongst those who have value systems like we have and amongst those who have no value systems at all. Integrity is very high on the agenda in looking for qualities within people in this day and age. So we're going to look at some of the ideas about integrity. And can I say, and use my Irishness here, that I'm going to give you my conclusion now. Because Irish people always do things back to front. And my conclusion, having moved from the general idea of integrity to God's ideas of integrity, I feel that tonight we're dealing with one of the absolutes I really mean that. Just as truth is an absolute, so I believe that integrity in God's economy is an absolute. And therefore, none of us this side of eternity will ever achieve all that's possible. Now that's not to dishearten us at all. But having this as our aim, the nearer we can get to it, I believe, the better we'll be. So we look at what is integrity. Then we look at that most precious of all examples, the example of the Lord Jesus Christ and how his integrity completed the absolute here on earth. And then we look at the Christian imperative. I want to take an example of something which we as Christians are expected to engage in throughout our lives and see how integrity matters, and that is in the area of the Great Commission which the Lord Jesus left for all of us. When he said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. And I want to look at integrity in this context. As St. Francis of Assisi said, we're preaching the gospel all the time. And sometimes 
we use words. And then to conclude the evening, I want to uh, suggest, no more than that, suggest what our aim should be if we have realized that integrity has this importance, how should we aim to spend the time the Lord has left for us in a world where integrity really is in short supply? For as I've studied it and as I've listened to what's going all around me, what a tragic society you and I have been called to witness for Christ in our lifetime. Integrity. There's very little of it about. Now, I've found out, as all these folk do, words which the dictionaries and the various commentaries suggest would define integrity. And as I read these, I wondered again why Colin had thought that I could make any comment. Candor, forthrightness, goodness, honestness, honesty, honorableness, incorruptibility, incorruption, principle, property, purity, rectitude, righteousness, sincerity, straightforwardness, virtue. Samuel Johnson said that integrity without knowledge is weak and useless, and knowledge without integrity is dangerous and dreadful. He penned those words in a book, Rasselas. Tyndall wrote in Faraday as a Discoverer in 1868, on being offered the presidency of the Royal Society, Faraday said, Tyndall, I must remain plain Mr. Faraday to the last. And let me now tell you that if I accepted the honour which the Royal Society desires to confer upon me, I would not answer for the integrity of my intellect for a single year. Beckstrom, live so that the preacher can tell the truth at your funeral. An evangelical academic, Oswald Chambers, said, My worth to God in public is what I am in private. Don Marcus cryptically said, Some people are likable in spite of their unswerving integrity. The Roman philosopher Seneca, Live among men as if God beheld you. Speak with God as if men were listening. Archbishop Benson, how desperately difficult it is to be honest with oneself. It is much easier to be honest with other people. 
Thomas Jefferson thought that honesty is the first chapter of the book of wisdom. I find this an interesting couplet. In his essay on man, Alexander Pope wrote this. An honest man's the noblest work of God. And Robbie Burns, in the Cotter's Saturday night, said, Princes and lords are but the breath of kings. An honest man's the noblest work of God. George Washington, I hope I shall possess firmness and virtue enough to maintain what I consider the most enviable of all titles, the character of an honest man. In Hamlet Act 3, Scene 3, the King Claudius speaks, realising that his crime, his brother's murder, has the primal oldest curse upon it. He goes on to say, In corrupted currents of this world, offences gilded hand may shove by justice, and oft has seen the wicked prize itself buys out the law. But tis not so above. There is no shuffling. There the action lies in his true nature. And to finish the quotes, a sad one really. Bacon, writing of truth, said, Certainly it is heaven upon earth to have a man's mind move in charity, rest in providence, and turn upon the poles of truth. There is no vice that doth so cover a man with shame as to be found false and perfidious. Sadly, he didn't live up to these standards. He was impeached, convicted of corruption, and dismissed from high office. He had been the Lord Chancellor. Of and so from a variety of sources we have a variety of thoughts on and expressions of integrity. Some who would share our values, others of lucid mind, of poetic brilliance, who could see beyond the superficial. And they all seem to combine to enhance man's understanding of integrity. Moving very quickly to a Christian comment, Stephen L. Carter, who has written the book Integrity, defines integrity as involving three steps. Number one, to discern what is right and wrong. Number two, to struggle to live according to the sense of right and wrong that you have discerned. And number three, to be willing to say what we are doing and why we are doing it. 
The first one, discernment. To discern what is right and wrong. Discernment takes time and emotional energy. It is much easier to follow the crowd. We are too busy or too tired to reflect on moral considerations. But having discerned, the second step, I would suggest, is the hardest. Because in their hearts, many people know the right thing. But they won't do it because they don't want to pay the price. The cost is too great. It's hard. I may believe in the pro-life stand. But my friends might not like it if they knew. The third step, to be willing to say what we are doing and why we are doing it. The third step, may I submit to you, is easier if you have a faith community to draw strength from rather than if you are just an individual standing alone. Now, it is not necessary to be religious to have integrity. But I suggest it is easier if you are. Church should be that base from which we operate. And is it stretching a point too far to suggest that I believe the Christian Institute provides similar mutual support and encouragement and gives us that base, that foundation, that input to say what we're doing and why we're doing it. So much for a quick look at the question, what is integrity? Now, a few precious moments. They've been precious to me as I've sought to pull them together. As we look at our lovely Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his example in this particular regard. The glories of the Lord Jesus Christ are threefold. Personal, official, and moral. His personal glory he veiled, except where faith discovered it, or on occasion demanded it. His official glory he also veiled, For as he walked the highways and byways, it was not evident that he was the divine son of almighty God or the authoritative son of David. These glories were hidden as a matter of course as he lived on earth. But, and it's a big but, his moral glory could not be hidden. 
he could not be less than perfect in everything. It belonged to him. It was himself. From its intense excellence, it was too bright for the eye of man. And man was under constant exposure and rebuke from it. But there it shone, whether man could bear it or not. Just as it once illuminated every step on earth the Lord took, it continues to do the same on every page of the gospel. And let's get hold of this wonderful truth tonight that we, in whom the Holy Spirit of God lives, we live in the good of his moral glory because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Think of this, if you will. His humanity was perfectly natural in its development. The final verse in the second chapter of Luke underscores this progress when it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. What made him unique, however, was that although there was progress in him, there was no cloud, no perversion, no error. His progress was but one form of moral beauty. His growth was orderly and his character entirely human in all its expressions. His progress was perfectly timed as in Psalm 1 he was the tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. Tested as boy and man, his integrity blossomed as in season. In the temple, at the well of Sychar, on the Mount of Transfiguration, on his last journey on the road to Jerusalem. <coughs> the Lord Jesus knew how to abound and to be abased. How to use the high moments. How to use the low moments. On the summit with Moses and Elias. In the foothills. Serving the needy. As the risen Christ in the midst of his disciples. Not glorying in his own miraculous resurrection. But teaching what it meant to them. And in addition, there was another aspect of the moral glory of the man, the perfect man, in his relation to the world. He was a conqueror, a sufferer, a benefactor. In the world, but not of the world. We see him at times with 
equal perfection, distinguishing important matters. Here's one. In dealing with sorrow, we see tenderness, the power that relieved. But in dealing with trouble, we see faithfulness as well as tenderness. Matthew chapter 8. The leper in this chapter is a stranger. He brings his sorrow to Christ and receives immediate healing. But the disciples in the very same chapter also bring their sorrow to him, their fears in the storm. But they receive rebuke as well as relief. Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? The leper had little faith too, but the Saviour's response was different in each case. It was simply sorrow in one case, unmixed tenderness to the one who was outside. In the other, for those inside, faithfulness was an additional ingredient. Therefore, in progress, in timing, in reacting to different situations, and in discerning needs, how perfect in moral glory and beauty were all the ways of the Lord Jesus Christ. His life was the bright shining of a candle, a lamp in the house of God needing no golden tongs or snuff dishes, It was ordered before the Lord continually burning as from pure beaten oil. It was making manifest all that was around, exposing, reproving, but it ever held its own place, uncondemned uncondemned, perfect. What an example. What a saviour. He's ours. And he calls us mine. What a privileged people we are. Now moving along to my third section, if I may please, the Christian imperative. I know and I accept that worship is the prime exercise of the Christian's life. Worship to our God, our Heavenly Father, Responding to the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and helped by the Holy Spirit, I accept that completely. But I want to move and perhaps offer this illustration as how integrity plays so vital a part 
in our other main activity, the preaching of the gospel. Preaching has been defined as the communication of divine truths through human personality. That definition is wide enough to include teaching in Sunday school or Bible class and personal evangelism, as well as preaching in the sense in which we usually understand it. The communication of divine truths through personality is something in which all us Christians should be involved. Indeed, can I press the point, are involved. What is personality? Well, the Dictionary of Psychology says, the integrated dynamic organization of the physical, mental, moral and social qualities of the individual as that manifests itself to other people in the give and take of social life, comprises of natural and acquired impulses, habits, interests, complexes, ideals, sentiments, opinions and beliefs. Now, you've all got that, I'm I'm sure. Now, there are preachers who say and speak of hiding behind the cross. Don't look at me. I'm only a voice, a channel. Now, can I say straight away, such self-effacement is commendable. And certainly, humility is essential in communicating divine truth. Yet, I would like to argue that personality does matter. Because I believe it is God's will to use personality in the communication of the gospel. He has chosen us. He has given us a personality. And he wants us to use that to tell of his own dear son. One has only got to think about the prophets of the Old Testament and how they expressed their message depended so much upon their individual personality, experience and integrity. Personality had not been effaced, rather it had been enhanced and used by the Holy Spirit. Let me pause here to say that as I look around your faces, I'm excited at the potential that is in this room. A variety of men and women with different personalities who under God can bring about the work of God in this our day and age. God does not want a squad of little robots all alike programmed to say the same thing in the same way. He wants individual Christians to express the gospel and their experience of it through their own individual personalities. But even more important than the quality of our personality is the nature of our character. By character I have in mind more particularly the moral qualities or integrity. Now, it is possible to communicate the gospel without the question of character entering into it. We can communicate from a distance, by written messages, tracts, books, newspapers, etc., by spoken messages, radio, records, tapes, or by visual messages, films, adverts, television. 
These are all very worthwhile and important methods of communicating the gospel. And nothing I say now must be construed as a criticism of such methods. It is not. But I would claim on the basis of the New Testament that God's normal method of reaching people with the gospel is through his servants making personal contact with others. As soon as we realize that communication of the gospel normally involves personal confrontation, a person-to-personal relationship, we will see, won't we, that the integrity of the communicator is vital. The New Testament emphasizes the link between effective evangelism and holiness of life. God has approved us as fit to be entrusted with the gospel, says Paul in 1 Thessalonians. It was the quality of Paul's life, his self-sacrifice, his caring, that convinced the Thessalonians that what he proclaimed was not the word of man, but the word of God. Life and lip went together. A life that was open to inspection at every point and backed up the message completely. Paul also said to the Corinthians, in order that our service may not be brought into discredit, we avoid giving offence in anything. As God's servants, we try to recommend ourselves in all circumstances. By the innocence of our behaviour, our grasp of truth, our patience and kindliness, by gifts of the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by declaring the truth, by the power of God. The man and the message, the woman and the message, go together. That's why Paul's so sensitive to criticism. Criticism of his personal conduct inevitably involved criticism of his gospel. As Michael Green says in Evangelism in the Early Church, belief and behaviour cannot be separated without disastrous results. Among them, the end of effective evangelism. This then is the main point I would like to make, please. The importance of the integrity of the person who communicates the gospel, us. There may be some people who communicate with us whose personal integrity doesn't concern us at all. We accept the communications of the TV and radio newsreaders, the newspaper, journalists and editors, the ad men, and so on without inquiring into their personal lives. What they say doesn't seem to relate to their personal character. I don't ask the policeman who gives me directions whether he ill-treats his wife. 
I accept the communication about the census without checking up on the private life of the Registrar General. But when it comes to the communication of the Gospel, integrity matters enormously. We claim to represent a holy God, a loving Saviour, and a powerful human spirit, Holy Spirit. We claim to have the answer to the problems of human existence. So therefore, I suggest, as a test, we must ask ourselves questions. Does my character confirm or contradict the message I preach or teach? Does it attract or repel people? Now let's take them one at a time. And what I ask you, I ask me. Does your life Character, integrity, confirm the message. A Selenese bishop wants to find preaching as one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. It's important not to set ourselves on a pedestal above others, you sinners. We're all sinners. The only difference is that we've been forgiven. Preaching is one sinner telling another sinner where to get salvation. Yet, having said that, there must be some evidence that you have found bread. That you're not still starving to death. Otherwise, why should anyone believe you? There must be some evidence that you have salvation. It must show. You say Christ gives joy. Why then are you always moaning? You say that Christ gives satisfaction. Why then are you still in the rat race for more possessions, more pleasure, more power? You say Christ gives peace. Why are you so anxiety ridden that you can't even sleep properly? You say that Christ gives purpose to life. Why then do you seem to be drifting aimlessly through life? You say that the Holy Spirit gives power over temptation. Why then are you still lazy, rude, selfish, inconsiderate and bad-tempered? You wish I hadn't come? (laughs) (laughs) Not that people should expect perfection... But they should see signs of growth in holiness. You say that you find the cure. What evidence is there that the cure is beginning to work on you? You may not be fully recovered, but are you obviously on the road to full spiritual health and strength? Am I? We make such great claims for the gospel, don't we? People have a right to look for evidence. And it's no good simply quoting the Bible at them. They want to see 
evidence in our lives. To so many today, the gospel is just words, an intellectual formulation, a religious philosophy. They want to see whether it works. They want to see what those words really mean in terms of real flesh and blood. The word became flesh. And it has got to go on becoming flesh in our lives. <coughs> Second question. Does your life, character, integrity contradict the message? We have, I suppose, all heard of the cynic who said to the preacher, What you are speaks so loud that I can't hear what you say. What you are is shown in what you do. Actions are a better index to integrity than words, I suggest. Let me take two examples from a novel by William Golding called Free Fall. Though it's fiction, I believe they're probably based on the author's memories of youth. Miss Massey had just finished telling her infant class three Bible stories. She picked on Johnny, who had been staring out of the window at an aeroplane. Why did I tell you those three stories? I don't know, miss. Miss Massey hit him on both sides of the head. Precisely with her hand. A word and a blow. God, smack, is, smack, love, smack, smack, smack. (laughs) Now today we would consider that Miss Massey's actions completely contradicted her message. Yet at the time, at the beginning of the century... The children would not have considered that her actions showed any inconsistency. She was fierce but fair. She was doing what she believed was best for them. It didn't seem to put them off Christianity. The other example is much more sinister. In his elementary school, Sammy Mountjoy met two teachers who both captured his interest and held him spellbound. One was old Nick, the science master. The other was Miss Pringle, who told him Bible stories. And she told them superbly. Miss Pringle was not like Miss Massey. She never touched anyone. She might soil her hands. Her weapons were no kin. They were different. Subtle, cruel, unfair, vicious. She rused sarcasm and ridicule. She hated Sammy, and he describes how she deliberately picked on him, embarrassed him before the class, and then marched him to the headmaster on a trumped-up charge. This is how he describes the influence of those two teachers. 
For an instant out of time, two worlds existed side by side. The one I inhabited by nature. The world of miracle drew me strongly. To give up the burning bush, the water from the rock, the spittle on the eyes, was to give up a portion of myself, a dark and inward and fruitful portion. Yet looking at me from the bush with the fat and freckled face of Miss Pringle. In the other world, the cool and reasonable was home to the friendly face of Nick Shales. I do not believe that rational choice stood any chance of exercise. I believe that my child's mind was made up for me as a choice between good and wicked fairies. Miss Pringle vitiated her teaching. She failed to convince, not by what she said, but what she was. Nick persuaded me to his natural scientific universe by what he was, not by what he said. I hung for an instant between two pictures of the universe. Then the ripple passed over the burning bush, and I ran toward my friend. In that moment, a door closed behind me. It slammed shut on Moses and Jehovah. What a solemn commentary are the words of the Lord Jesus. If a person is a cause of stumbling to one of these little ones, it would be better for him to have a millstone hung round his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Young children are very good at telling whether or not a person is genuine. They judge your attitude to them not by what you say but by what you do. And children can be merciless in their criticism. But whatever age the people are with whom we're trying to communicate, we must avoid placing stumbling blocks in their way. The gospel has its own built-in snags, its difficulties, its offending features. A stumbling block to the Jews, folly to Greeks. But we must not add stumbling blocks of our own. So often people do not reject the gospel, but our personal version of it. A gospel perverted by the poor quality of our life and integrity. And the third question. Does my life, character, integrity attract people to Christ? Or does it repel? Many people testify that they first became interested in the gospel through observing the life and character of a Christian friend, workmate, teacher, covenanter, leader, etc. An attractive person causes people to ask, what's he got, what's she got that I haven't? With children and young people, the power of example is particularly important. Young children copy their older brothers and sisters. Teenagers identify with their peer group and imitate their favourite pop star or footballer. Let me quote from a very valuable handbook, Christian Leadership, by R. W. Pinchbeck, the late skipper of Covenanters. It is a solemn fact that no man can ever raise others to a higher level than the one upon which he himself lives his life. To put it another way, 
The work among boys that you undertake will either rise or fall to the level of your own life. More challenging still, the boys themselves will be like you. Your standards will be their standards. Your honesty, your truthfulness, your loyalty, your enthusiasm, your thoughtfulness for others, your courtesy, your courage, your cheerfulness, your faith. Conversion, your pettiness, your jealousy, your criticism of others, your lack of sportsmanship, your moodiness, your lack of confidence, your carelessness or lack of thoughtfulness, your shallowness, your conceits, and so on through all the range of weaknesses to which we're also prone, whether we admit it or not. And you can't escape it. The years will prove it. Many an experienced leader carries in his breast the humiliation and contrition which comes to a man when he sees the boys he once led showing those blemishes of personal character which he knows in his heart were learned of him. Not that he taught them, but that he lived them. And what the shrewd eyes observed, the generous, hero-worshipping boys copied. Many claim that with young children, religion is caught, not taught. Certainly I would claim that the quality of a teacher's integrity causes children to have a favourable attitude to the gospel, and not only teachers, all of us. It is terrifying, but true, what they think of Christ may well depend on what they think of you and me. Someone put it like this, First I came to love my teacher. Then I came to love my teacher's Bible. Then I came to love my teacher's Savior. All this implies that we shall get involved with people. It suggests that the hit and run sort of evangelism here today, gone tomorrow, is not the best kind. We don't get to know people. More importantly, they don't get to know us. People need to see us at work and at home. We need to develop friendships with non-Christians. This is why it is important to have more contact with people. The importance of the witness of a group of Christians living and working together in love and harmony has been stressed by Francis Schaeffer in his book, <coughs> The Church at the End of the 20th Century. And here's what he says. Unless people see in our churches not only the preaching of the truth, but the practice of the truth, the practice of love and the practices of beauty, unless they see that the thing that the humanists rightly want but cannot achieve on a humanist base, human communication and human relationship, it is able to be practiced in our communities, then let me say it clearly. They will not listen. And... They should not listen. And finally, the aim, the Christian aim. Think of the various roles that you have already lived through in your life. I've jotted mine down but you must link your own from, from birth. 
for on each of these levels my integrity has been tested as a son a brother a friend a fiancé a husband a son-in-law a father a grandfather an employee an employer a colleague, a neighbour, a church member, an elder, a pastor. At all those levels, my integrity is tested, and so is yours. May I close by offering four ways for us as Christians to nurture integrity. One, to pray and reflect. Prayer fosters attentiveness to the presence and movement of God. In prayer we not only share ourselves and our lives with God, but also listen expectantly for God's responses and invitations. Reflection connects the responses, invitations and challenges that arise in prayer with our everyday lives. We may reflect by keeping a diary, sharing with a close friend, meditating on scripture or simply sitting and thinking about our lives. As we reflect, we prayerfully ask, how and where is God calling me to deeper authenticity? Truthfulness, responsibility, faithfulness. Secondly, to seek and to see examples. We can seek out people of integrity for inspiration and instruction. Through reading and personal counter, we can keep company with them. The Gospels provide us with the ultimate example of integrity in the life of Jesus. Stories of other biblical figures nourish us as well. Job, David, Mary, the Syrophoenician woman and Zacchaeus are a few examples. The biographies of people of integrity can also nurture integrity. Watch for stories of integrity in newspapers and magazines. Most of all, we can observe ordinary saints all around us. Thirdly, Find support and community. Spiritual companions remind us that we're not alone. They help us keep perspective by placing our circumstance in the larger framework of faith. This is important when we feel frightened and uncertain. It is crucial when we think we are absolutely right. As people of faith, it is important that we pray for and support those who speak and act with integrity. Personal and corporate integrity are too often devalued or dismissed in our culture. And fourthly, choose life. An underlying theme of all faithful integrity is that of choosing life. Deuteronomy, I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life that you and your descendants may live. Developing a sense of reverence for life, for ourselves and for others, 
nurtures integrity. We begin to see more clearly the immensity of the gift of life which God has given us. To choose life, we must seek to understand the issues, problems, and challenges of our world, not only from our perspective, but from others as well. Each day, God calls us to choose life, to choose blessing over curse. As we answer that call in our homes and communities, we become, with God's help, People of integrity. And perhaps our closing prayer might simply be Search me, O God, my actions try, and let my life appear as seen by thine all searching eye to mine. My ways make clear. Thank you uh, very much indeed, Ernest. I'm sure we've all been hugely challenged by what you have said. Now, we, you did agree think that you would take some questions or comments uh, for for a little while and I'm now going to just give you I really do hate these moments in churches because they're always usually so unproductive where you just turn to your neighbor and say something don't ask you to do that but just perhaps if you want to you may not leave uh, but you may just stand up for a moment if you want to or say something, and then in one minute I'll call you back to order and we take some questions. So could you do that, please? Could you close the doors? Can I ask you to resume your seats? Um, it doesn't have to be questions. They can be comments as well. And um, it's always difficult to make the first comment, and if I don't get one coming soon, I'll ask somebody. Uh, Yes. Um, the Lord Jesus said that um, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And um, Paul says to Timothy that the end of our charge is love out of your heart with a sincere faith and with their conscience. And he also said of Hymenius and, and Philetus that they made shipwreck of their faith. And because they neglect conscience and go to their integrity, which is a <coughs> judge by conscience. Is it, as I assume it is, an essential part of faith, genuine, sincere faith, that we take conscience, to have a clear conscience and a matter of integrity, and that the Love to have a pure heart, they are all integral and part of our maturity in Christ and growth in Christ. We cannot be divorced, cannot be compromised on matters of integrity by the effects of conscience. Because Philetus and Timaeus, they should take their faith 
the because of their poor conscience, and they blaspheme simple evidence that they lost their love too. Is integrity so important as I believe it is that God is innocent of anything of what uh, of sin and of guilt? Is integrity so enormously important as I've seen it tonight to be in our in the whole structure and aim of, of the charge we have from God? John was slightly inaccurate when he said I had agreed to questions. <laughs> what he should have said was Colin told me I would have to face questions. And what I said to John was that on an evening like this, when you've been so good and patient and listened to what I was saying, possibly comment would be more helpful to all of us than questions. But thank you for this question, which in fact is a comment and one with which I would heartily concur. Um, predestination is, in my view, not a place, but it's a condition. God has predestined us to become like his own dear son. And one day we will be like him. When we see him face to face, we will be like him. And what you've said, I believe, is part of this process of the Holy Spirit of God working in all our lives. And the moment before some of us become like Christ, some of us will be more like him then than others. And these very things and these men that you've quoted are so typical of all of us reflected in all of our lives here, the ups and downs, the shipwrecks, the problems. But yes, I would submit that integrity, the beauty of the Lord Jesus and his integrity and moral glory, being part of us is God's wish for us. And uh, I would simply say yes to what you've said. And I'm glad you felt that the way we treated the subject tonight could be supported by that example. There's a gentleman in the corner that had his hand up, I think. Had you? Have I? Question. I'm providing it's easy. I shall allow you to ask it. Yes, ask your question. understand the question <laughs> did everybody hear did everyone hear the question is the salvation of souls the act of the sovereignty of God or the integrity of the evangelist or the preacher or the teacher is that the question <clears throat> it's clear one that you can answer yeah. uh... <laughs> I believe unquestioningly it's the prerogative of God sovereignty of God but in his wisdom he has involved us in that work and I believe that faithfulness is all that he's ever asked us to be but the supreme act of saving a soul is divine 
Only God can do that. But in his work, I believe that the integrity of the messenger is what he wishes. I can't explain why he wishes it like that. In my own gospel preaching over the years, I have often wondered why it was left to folk like me, knowing my own inadequacies. But I have no question in agreeing with the first part of your question. That is sovereign to God. But his will is that we should be involved in that. And in being involved, he wishes our integrity to be part of the presentation of the message. That's what I feel. Yes. This is a comment, not a question. I agree um, that uh, integrity is important in uh, Christian life to show other people, you know, the ways of the word. And um, you know, a man's defined by his actions, not his words. I feel more so. Thank you. As a comment, you don't need to respond to that. (laughs) Yes. Comment that um, along similar lines. I think you know the fact that. And um, God pulls some people out of the, the really darkest things that we see in life, like you know, crime or uh, violence or drugs or something. And the, these things are so insignificant to God that He pulls somebody out and declares His glory in doing that, and, and in showing that you know that thing is insignificant compared to His greatness. And in the same way, you know, we're sinners. Maybe not. I'm not involved in drugs or whatever, but I'm still a sinner. And God can, you know, transform me to have that dignity. He's also declaring His glory. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. This is rather a lazy question, really. Lazy? About, yeah, I should think about myself. But <laughs> is it a comment and a question? No, it is, it's a question. question, really, to sort of throw out to everyone. Um, right. That is really what, you know, in, in our Western culture today is militating mostly against integrity. What in Western culture today militates most against integrity? I said you said you could throw it out to everybody. I'll just ask somebody, shall I? Materialism. Materialism is one. The desire to emancipate self rather than to see the Lord Jesus Christ emancipated in us. Essentially, self centeredness and materialism. Which can never satisfy. Lack of surrender to Christ. My friend here says unclear leadership. Yes, let's just keep off the bishop's <laughs> for a moment, because I was rather hoping that we could not talk about the Bishop of the Church of England until the next session. However, you're right. Yeah. I think to some extent we've missed a fundamental. Yeah. Uh, I accept that uh, if, if you look at integrity, say, as a virtue and related to something like honesty, you can say, well, in the world you can find men of integrity in that way. But the ultimate and full definition, uh, biblically, of integrity is only satisfied in the Christian and in Christ's likeness. Um, in Habakkuk and uh, chapter uh, 2 for example uh, behold his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him but the just shall live by his faith 
that if we define integrity in terms of uprightness, then it belongs to Christ, and it belongs to those who are like Christ. And I think this is intensely relevant to, uh, to Golding's parables, because underlying them is a humanistic presupposition with respect to uh, the situation of attractiveness and so on. Because I would maintain that the crucifixion of Christ and the hatred against Christ resulted from <coughs> his integrity, mm. resulted from his uprightness. And I'm sure you will know as a man of business too that from the point of view of a, a person in a, in a business context, they might be the most unattractive person in that firm with their colleagues because of integrity, because of uprightness. And I, I think that's an issue, this is an issue that we've got to face, that pride is against the Christ-like uprightness. And we're, we're living in a world of, of, of pride. And that's why I don't, I don't think we can... Uh, I don't think we can take Golding's kind of parable as uh, an adequate definition of how we've got to face up to living lives of integrity in Christ. Such a comment. <laughs> yes, I accept what you said. I was only using those oh, yes, as a, yes, along the way. Uh, it's a comment, and I yes, accept it. And my my conclusion, which I gave at the beginning, <laughs> marries exactly with what you say. It is only the Christian who has the ability to reach up to that integrity. And it's only when we are like Christ that we... He's the only one who's ever fulfilled it. But it's an, I still believe it's an absolute and something which we should strive after with the Holy Spirit enabling us to reach to it. But, but you're so right. And thank you for that. The, the scriptures record a number of, about 16 times I think integrity. John wrote those selected, read those selected passages and I wanted, and if you read them again it'll come to you with the same force that it came to me, that this is of God. This is God's uh, doing and only God can do these things. And uh, it certainly is a divine attribute. But thank you for those. Well, yeah, I mean, have you any comments in the light of your experience of dealing with this problem where the Christian is unattractive in a particular context because of their loyalty to, to Christ and seeking to do what is, what is right? Is this still being recorded? <laughs> it can be edited, can't it? C could you cut this bit? Cut this bit, please. You can't record it again? <laughs> Definitely good. Did you stop going? Pardon? Did you stop, Did you stop going? You stopped accompanying him. There was an instruction. It wasn't <laughs> One of the things that is said, this may become a very muddled, is that churches very often have no concept of the complexity of the world in which Christians have to live. And it is a complex world. Uh, a 
and therefore they offer trite advice. Um, and also, I mean, I've been in situations, and I know others in this room have been in situations, where you have had to do what you believe to be right, to act with integrity, to dismiss, to suspend, to discipline. And sometimes uh, you've done that in a way where truth and love are not held together. And uh, that's a very difficult situation in which we found ourselves and then have been accused of acting in a, a non-Christian way, which is sometimes the world often throws at you because their understanding of Christianity is a particularly superficial one as well. There must have been many occasions, Ernest, in your life and your career where you've had to do very difficult things uh, which affected people and their careers and so on and you've had to act with integrity and yet sometimes you felt you haven't got it right. I certainly do. Yes, and as a follow-on really from what you've said, I've given you a business example. But here's another example and perhaps Pamela might help us in this. I have found tremendous difficulty in my welfare work. When I have been in possession, however I've got it, it doesn't matter, I was in possession of information which enabled me to know that the person I was counselling, I was going to see on a regular basis, was actually suffering from a terminal illness. What was I to do as a non-medical person if confronted by that person with a statement about their condition? I struggled with that many times. Are there any comments from a medical point of view? It's awful to pick on you like that, but um, can you see the dilemma I, as a non-medical person, was in. Was I going to tell the truth and maybe set back someone's treatment or recovery or or whatever? That was a serious, serious matter. And while you're thinking about that, perhaps could I just say the other issue we discussed this coming along in the car tonight. When people's careers are in your gift, when when you can do or say something that they will interpret and in fact will be either a setback to their career or a change in direction or a failure. I've had to face up to the belief that I had that if this person was to be promoted, they would be over-promoted and could possibly, because of other experiences, ruin their lives they came forward to be promoted they felt they were suitable but was I going to promote them because I believed sincerely that their life their family's life would be adversely affected and that was a great test in a different way 